This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we are off the ball. It's Monday, it's football, it is myself, Cam Ruslan, hosting now, and we have the return of, he's um, one of the finest minds in football punditry, I think, Arvin Sidhu. Hi everyone. Watford and Norwich had light problems over the weekend. Brentford versus Wolves had a drone flying over it, so there were disruptions all over, but we are here. We are here consistently at BFM. Yeah, well, speaking of disruptions, you see, because um, we are hoping that Kishnan Sundaresan is going to join us uh, at some point during this uh, this match, and uh, he'll be a late substitution. But we do have he's a first timer um, on uh, off the ball. He's come up through the off off the ball academy system, where he's uh, proven his worth. He's a good lad. He doesn't get to any trouble in the nightclubs at the moment. But will success go to his head? Uh, he is a Manchester United fan, and he has a podcast called... I forgot what it's called again. What's it called? <laughs> Pocket, Red Pic- Devils. Pocket Devils. Pocket <laughs> Devils. I want to say Red Pickles. What does that mean? Um, Pocket Devils, uh, one of the most talked about podcasts at the moment. Uh, they, they concentrate on Manchester United. He is Sean Maholtra. Everyone, I'm new. I hope I, I, I leave a mark. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, a, a good mark. Yeah. You can leave a... Bad mark. You could leave a Gary Lineker type mark. Oh, oh no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that kind of mark. Um, so uh, we're going we're gonna to start off and uh, hopefully Kishna will join us. Because, but we're going to start with, um, well, I think that, uh, Sean, you'll be interested in this one. Manchester United 1, West Ham nil. Now, I thought that Manchester United were pretty good in this. I thought they were very compact. They they were working in like little wolf packs, short passing, scored very late. But I was actually really impressed by this. It was the most together performance by United I think I've seen in a very long time. I'd agree. I mean, the, the Rough Riding has been saying for the longest time now that we need control of games. And this is the first game in 90 minutes where we had full control. But the main issue was Finishing in the final third, we had mainly one good chance from Fred, which was saved by Ariola. And of course, it's United's way to score in the last minute in the most epic and fashionable of ways. So it's building towards something new, which is good. We have control now, so we can build from that kind of thing. Uh, Arvin, you're kind of neutral, I guess, kind of, when it comes to Manchester United, uh, as a Leeds United fan. <laughs> Uh, what did you think? Did you think that they were on on a path? They're on a path to something. I mean, we look back at a, the last few performances as well. Yeah, I think. I mean, they were, it was the best performance under the Ragnik era. Let's not take anything away from it. I thought eighty five percent of the game they were totally dominant. Uh, it was against a compact four four two block from the Hammers. So the Hammers set out their store very clear that they were out there to frustrate United, which to a certain extent that they did. Obviously, at the end of the game, and I agree with Sean, it's important to have that that last-minute hurrah that United have been so famous for over the years. But on any other given day, Cam, that discussion point is that West Ham could have felt that they were robbed with that bar decision. Because if you look at that line, on any other given day, it could have been given either way, right? There were actual memes online that maybe Sir Alex is in the VAR room (laughs) sitting and he's decided that. But um, I think United, uh, it's the consistency of these performances that need to continuously happen. Scott McDominay, again, for me, is the brightest spark under the Ralph Ragnick era. He's an anchoring figure for them. But he got his substitution spot on because Marshall, Cavani, Rashford, all of them played a part in the goal. And you have to give credit to the manager when he does that. Ronaldo is a bit of a peripheral figure, and that's another big issue that he needs to sort out. But he needs to be given time. Let's let's not take anything away from that. Ralph Ragnick needs to be given time. Sure, one last word from you on on United because I know you you know you, you think about them, you dream about them. You probably have like <laughs> United pajamas and everything. <laughs> but uh, I don't have my ear to the ground in the United grapevine, mixing my metaphors as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rashford has not been looking, I don't know, happy recently. Uh, but he scored that late goal, and he has mm-hmm. actually been amongst the goals. Uh, is Rashford kind of like getting over his whatever his troubles have been? Do you think? Thing is, time will tell because the guy's had two surgeries since coming back from from the Euros. He played on with injuries last season, and he was one of our best players last season as well. So this season, I think things have changed. If you think about it, we played under Ole at the start of the season, and then we went to Michael Carrick for a few games, and now you've got Ralph Ragnick. 
the style of football is going to change. And his mindset doesn't entirely look like it's in the game. His confidence has dropped. So these two goals that he scored, two goals in two games, both very important goals, both off the bench as well. It's important for him for his confidence, but whether or not he becomes a, a starring figure in the team going forward this season, I don't know. Because you have young players like uh, Anthony Ilanga who honestly look great. Right, they're, they're, they're contributing to the team. The one problem Rashford's had, which as a fan I can see, is that he tries very hard. But the thing is, he's trying in the wrong areas. He thinks he can take on every player he goes up against when there are players who are open in position positions as well. And what you want from your two wingers is to also f- fall back and help the defense. You know, that's the one thing that Rashford and I'd say Mason Greenwood really struggle with is they don't cover for their, their fullbacks a lot of the time. When you see players like Ilanga who come from the academy, they know that they have to track back, go forward, track back, go forward. So you need that. But I think Marcus Rashford, with these performances, could help his confidence because he's all about goals. So the more goals he scores, the more confidence he'll get. So hopefully he gets back to where he needs to be. Okay, well, we're going to take you away from your comfort zone now, Sean. And <laughs> we'll see if you even recognize the names of clubs like uh, Everton mm-hmm. and uh, Aston Villa. I'm, I'm getting word over the, uh, the, the system that uh, Kishnan mm-hmm. Sundaresan might be joining us. This is the first time, never been like so. But uh, while uh, Kishnan sorts himself out and joins us, because when you come straight off the bench like this without a warm-up, it can be, uh, you can get injuries. Uh, Kishnan Sundaresan has joined us, uh, and uh, we're going to move on. But Kishnan, you hold your position there right now. But remember, remember what we told you. Um, remember the game plan. Arvin, I want to talk about, um, I've skipped over West Ham entirely. Sorry, West Ham fans. <laughs> Arvin, I want to talk about your team, Leeds United. I thought this was a, you, Leeds United nil, Newcastle 1. I, when I was watching Leeds, I couldn't really tell what I was watching. It Was it, they, they were creating half chances, chances. Um, what, what was, what happened? What is happening to yeah. Leeds? It's a common story. I mean, this is something that Bielsa has kind of, had with us for a couple of seasons. I mean, if you looked at the fixture list, Leeds would have targeted Burnley at home and Newcastle at home to be a six-pointer. But for them to beat Burnley at home and then go away to West Ham and win and then come back and lose at home to Newcastle, that's very, very Leeds-like. They're struggling without a recognised striker. I mean, any other day, there were chances, there were opportunities for the likes of Dan James. Rafina had a couple of opportunities as well. But Leeds without Patrick Bamford, it's a very different different ball game because they lose that focal point. Uh, there are some frustrations with Rodrigo because he's playing in a role which is an attacking midfielder role that's not what he's best at. And I, I, I don't like fans coming out and slating players and telling them they're not fit to wear the badge and they're not fit to be a footballer. But Tyler Roberts is someone that's constantly getting slated by Leeds fans at this moment in time. He came on. Unfortunately, the ball bounced off him. Newcastle went on the other end. Free kick. John Joe Shelby, Melias should have done better because when you have a free kick like that, it bounces in front of you and it wasn't hit with any venom of any sort. So Leeds will will do this this season. I mean, the sophomore season was always going to be the harder one, but they need Bamford back quicker because the longer that they don't, that identity and that focal point is missing. But he's got another injury, has he not? He does, yeah. And it's heard that he could be out till after the international break. And it's typical, again, of Leeds. I mean, Bamford's last injury is because he got it when he was celebrating a goal. So it's mm. just just the, just the irony of sometimes things happening. So, yeah. Kish, I want to bring you in here with uh, the richest club in the world now, Newcastle United. Uh, despite having uh, Kylian Mbappe on the pitch, uh, oh, sorry, the, those are my notes for next season's Newcastle United. <laughs> you know, they this, this uh, win has helped them in the table. I was not too impressed by them they were okay uh what, what did you think do you think they're gonna they're gonna uh, scrape by i think when we talk about newcastle there's two things to take into consideration right i think first and foremost um upon eddie house appointment i think that's when most people started to realize just how substandard the newcastle squad actually is when you look at the quality that they have within within their team it's actually pretty substandard compared to a lot of the other Premier League teams. And prior to this, it, it's actually a bit of a miracle that you know previous head coaches like Steve Bruce have just been able to keep them up in the Premier League because that team is really, really just championship quality. But the second thing is that under Eddie Howe, um, it was always going to take time because we know Eddie Howe is a manager that has an identity of football. He has a, a way of playing. Um, he's got a style of football that he wants his teams to adhere to. But that process will always take time, especially when... You're talking about a team 
uh, that prior to this had been playing Route 1 football under Steve Bruce. And now you're moving completely in the opposite direction to a possession-based football under Eddie Howe. And that's always going to take time. But the good thing is, um, it, it's it's starting to show. It's the, the, You're starting to see the shape. You're starting to see the style of play. Certain players are being given the creative freedom. Obviously, things need to happen faster because they're in a relegation battle. But it's 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 starting to show. And that's great. And, and, and as far as, as the current situation is concerned, Wins like this is important because between now and end of the season, as that style of play starts to you know take a better shape, um, all these wins will help them get out of the relegation zone. And if you look at this point in time, I was speaking to one of my colleagues, uh, Burn at the office, who's a major Newcastle fan, and he's saying that when you look at, at, at the table at the moment and you look at the players that they've brought in and you look at the players that they're rumored to bring in between now and when the January window closes, um, there's plenty of reasons for Newcastle fans to be optimistic. And you, so therefore, Kishnan says Newcastle are going to survive. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think they, they, they will survive. Hey, uh, Sean, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I want to ask you a question about free kicks. I right. That free kick was, it wasn't one of the greatest free kicks of all time. It wasn't Roberto Carlos against France. It was, uh, I don't know how that one got in, but I, I kind of seem to remember, and I wasn't sure if I was, dreaming it that there used to be a lot more free kick goals and i look back and actually there are fewer i think uh, ward prouse who scored a beautiful one the other day he's always up there but otherwise am i dreaming it i wouldn't disagree with you i mean back then you had your ronaldo's your juninho's easily score free kicks i think being a dead ball specialist takes a lot of work you know they're, they're underrated players who are great dead ball specialists like Kieran Trippier at Newcastle now. Takes pretty much every free kick for England, takes corners for England because he's that good, right? There's a lot of things that can contribute to it, in my opinion. The ball, the player who's taking it, how goalkeepers set up their walls. I think if you look back like five, six years ago, you wouldn't see a, a wall that has a man lying down behind the wall, right? But now you see it very often. So, I don't know, maybe the, the free kick experts don't exist as much now, but when you do see them, like James Ward-Prowse, for example, he's been, you know, like, honing this craft for many years. And he's really, really good at it. Or at United, you have Ronaldo, who used to, nine times out of ten, would score a free kick, but it's changed. He has the same technique, but it changes. You have Drogba. So, some could say it's the ball, right? For example, years ago, you had uh, the Jabulani ball, which had no seams on it, and it could move everywhere. But now it's it's different. So I think it takes a special kind of person to be able to take a free kick effectively to set up or to score. Like Ruben Neves is great at setting them up and sometimes scoring as well. So you, but you don't have it as often anymore. Hmm. So okay. So it's not. I wasn't dreaming it. <laughs> uh, that's all I want to know. I'm not going crazy. Arvin, I want to. You, you have a, a couple of minutes to t- tell us about. Watford nil, Norwich three. Uh, Norwich uh, with with the American Josh Sargent, who looks amazing, but I'd never heard of him before. Uh, Norwich, that they're out of the relegation zone. Uh, it was unheard of a couple of months ago when they when they were previously under their their ex manager Daniel Parker, right? I mean, Josh Sargent's had a big week. I mean, he's had his first newborn. He's got a couple of goals. The first goal, he's come out and said that he doesn't think that he could score a better goal than that. <laughs> I was It was quite controversial as well because at the end, there could have been a foul given. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the tables just kind of have turned right now. I, I would look at Watford and think that Claudio Ranieri's job could be very much at stake. I mean, when you lose 10 out of your 13 matches since you were appointed, you know the Pozo family's patience will run out just like that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by it. By the time tomorrow, at this time, he's, he's out of a job. And but the next away game that they have is against Burnley for Watford. That is huge. That's literally a, a six pointer in itself. But but Norwich slowly they're coming about. Josh Charlton and Adamida in, in attack is quite a good player as well. Ben Gibson seems to be forming a better partnership with Grant Hanley. So overall, it's just amazing how things could have changed in a couple of months with a new manager. Because a couple of months ago we were thinking that Norwich were going to match Derby's record in the, the mm. Premier League as one of the worst teams, but they're out of the relegation zone. It's incredible. Since mm. 1995, they've been there since 1995. So anyway. Yeah, because by my calculations, um, the way things are going, nobody's going to get relegated this season. Uh, the um, But we, uh, we're going to move on. We're going to take a break now. And uh, and in a moment, we shall be continuing with our EPL. It's pretty much EPL, a bit of Africa Cup of Nations at the end. Off the ball here on BFM 89.9. Captain, leader, legend... On BFM 89.9. And we're back. Off the ball. Football. Monday. 
we have Arvind Sidhu, we have Kishnan Sundaresan, and we have newcomer Sean Malhotra, who so far is uh, sticking to the game plan. He's holding up the ball well. Uh, manager's quite pleased. But uh, he could still do one of those rash. What was what was uh, Stephen Gerrard? He was red guarded on his first uh, on his debut, wasn't he? And his final match against United as well. That was the one that yeah. he, was he came on for like thirty seconds. Was. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, and I seem to remember all these top players, uh, Beckham and all of them. Didn't they all just come on and get red carded on their first match? Definitely the lasting impression, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, you watch out. Um, we're going to move on now to uh, a match which uh, which has some consequences: Chelsea to Spurs nil. Now, I don't know if anybody knows this at Tottenham Hotspur, but they are actually allowed to win at Stamford Bridge. But they haven't won there since uh, 2018. And I just get into my head. I assume, oh, Spurs at Stamford Bridge, they're going to lose. And so they did. With Ziyech, another player that I don't know too much about, scoring an Iron Robin goal, uh, which is hardly surprising because he came up through the Dutch system. Kishnan, can you tell us about this, this young man? Uh, Hakim Ziyech has had a really difficult time at Chelsea. Um, he came in with a lot of expectations on his shoulders, uh, especially after uh, you know a couple of really, really incredible seasons with Ajax. I mean, a, a lot more, but but there were a couple that really stood out. Um, and he was also part of the team that saw Ajax and made that incredible run all the way to the semifinals of the Champions League, I think about three seasons ago. So he's got a lot of talent, a lot of pedigree, uh, a lot of ability, certainly. But he's come under fire a little bit at Chelsea because he's... I don't think they've quite found the perfect spot for him to play. I think first and foremost, they've got too many attacking players up front. But second of all, I, I don't think Thomas Tuchel is exactly the most ZH-friendly head coach out there. Because ZH is not a, not the kind of player uh, that drives their opponent, that presses, that you know relentlessly makes runs off the ball. He's, he's a lot more like a classic number 10, right? He's, he's elegant, he's skillful, he likes his time on the ball at times, which is not... You know, necessarily something that's afforded to you at Chelsea. Um, but it has to be said that his work is socks off. In the last half a season, I think he's worked really hard to try and establish himself, to try and get himself some form of game time. I don't think he's still an automatic starter for Thomas Tuchel. I think Tuchel still plays him every now and then. Uh, but last night against against Spurs, he looked really, really good. And it wasn't just the goal. The goal was incredible, make no mistakes. The goal was beautiful. And I think anyone who grows up, you know, absolutely adoring Iron Robin would have got goosebumps watching that goal last night. Uh, but it was the kind of passes he was playing. It was it was the switches, the, you know, the cross-field switches that he was making, the, the true balls that he was creating and the chemistry that he had with the players. If anyone out there is a Hakim Ziyech fan and they've been a bit frustrated with this time at Chelsea so far, I think last night would have been really, really encouraging. It was really fun to watch Ziyech just be Ziyech on the pitch last night. Correct. <laughs> Kishnan. <laughs> As we go, go along, I'm going to ask Kishnan increasingly more difficult questions and see if he can keep up. Uh, Arvin, uh, Chelsea, I, I, I mean, Ziyech aside, I thought Chelsea were, you know, okay, solid, but um, Spurs had their, their moments and this guy, Harry Kane, was... Being very Harry Kane, being playing the playmaker and also trying to be the striker, have they improved under Conte? Yeah, of course they have. I mean, whatever you say, they have. I mean, it was a change per side with a with a four four two system. They held Chelsea's pressure for the first forty five minutes, and there was that call where Kane kind of they, they kind of adjusted. He had pushed uh, Thiago Silva, and then uh, Conte came on and said that in England this shouldn't be a foul, indicating that in England it's more of a man's game compared to the more flary type leagues of, of, of La Liga and potentially even um, Serie A. Yeah, I think this is Spurs have just got an inferiority complex when they go to Stamford Bridge. I think you hit it on the on the on the nail when you when you started this discussion. I mean, one win in 36 games there, that's an absolutely horrible, horrible record. I, I would imagine Spurs fans going to Stamford Bridge themselves were thinking, we've been here, this is Groundhog Day for us. We've been here so many times. Uh but on the day itself, I mean some of the players I just think didn't show up. Jeffrey Tanganga, I thought, was a weak link. He got, after he was booked, he was too easily beaten by Hudson Odoi. Uh, Harry Wings, for me, seems less comfortable in a midfield two compared to a midfield three. Doesn't have enough protection. The one player that, for me, was the bright spot was uh, Steven Bergwijn. And it's natural because of his last-minute exploits against Leicester, 
So Spurs have improved under Conte, but he made his his things very clear and he did say it out in the interview, I think with Astro as well. He needs a minimum of two transfer windows to get the players that he wants to bring them to the level that they need. Will he be given that amount of time? As long as it doesn't behave badly like Mourinho, I think Spurs are quite forgiving. Sean, Chelsea. Chelsea in their sleep can beat just about anybody. I'm wondering what is Chelsea's season and what is the motivation for Chelsea players now when the top three is absolutely wrapped up? But I don't think catching Man City is, is possible. Or, or do you think that they're still going to be motivated to try and press on? You know, you are the defending European champions at the end of the day. You can't take anything away from Chelsea. They deserve to be the European champions. That being said, with that weight that you have, you need to be challenging, right, for the top three and as well pushing City as far as you can go. So I think Tuchel will keep it in mind that, hey, we, we still have, you know, half the season to go. We can still push them all the way. We're still in the Champions League. We're still in the FA Cup. You can actually press on all fronts. So with that being said, I don't think Chelsea or Tuchel will be slowing down anytime now. But I mean, they've, they've drawn a lot of games leading up to the Spurs game. So this win could galvanize them to push forward and try to win more games. I think they have a good run right now. So I don't see any reason why why they should slow down. They could go on on a winning run. You know, this Chelsea team can turn it on when they want. The thing they've been missing is just the, the finishing in the final third as of late. But the way they played against Spurs, they had total control. They looked really good. Some fluid play. And I think this was Ziyech's best game maybe for Chelsea thus far. I think he had a great chance to score another great one where he snapped at the volley. So this is something they can build on, definitely. Oh, well, when we went into a match, which I was looking forward to, I thought it was going to be fun. It was fun. It was Crystal Palace 1, Liverpool 3. And one of the things that caught my eye about this, uh, Quiche, was, well, one, Van Dyke scored a Van Dyke goal. Um, he's very important to them, is he not? But also, um, I, I was very surprised when uh, when Crystal Palace scored their goal. Liverpool were two goals up, but they cut through them as if Liverpool was set up chasing the game. And and I'm wondering if there's anything t- that other teams can learn from from the example. That's honestly the great thing about Patrick Vieira's uh, Crystal Palace. Um, I think them conceding the the first two goals in the first half. Um, they would have been very disappointed with the first one, especially because that has been their problem all season long, set pieces. Uh, I think earlier in the corresponding fixture, earlier this season, when Liverpool beat them 3-0, I think a vast majority of those goals came by a set pieces as well. Um, and, and, and just in general, Palace have been one of the poorest teams in the league, statistically, when it comes to conceding goals via set pieces. So to concede an easy one with Van Dyke just practically having a clean header unmarked, um, that must have been disappointing. The second one, very difficult because it was an excellent pass from you know uh, Andy Robertson. He was completely unmarked obsolete Chamberlain at the far post and he had all the time in the world to chest it and, and score it. But how they responded after that, that is Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. A team that doesn't want to sit deep. Because make, make no mistakes, if this was Roy Hodgson's Palace and they had conceded two goals in the first half, what we would have seen in the second half is just damage limitations. It's just sitting in a low block and accept, you know, absorbing pressure and not even wanting to attack at all. But what they did was completely opposite. They were brave. They were bringing the ball to Liverpool. They were attacking them. They were playing progressively. And they put so much pressure on Liverpool. And that goal, that was an exceptional through ball from Jeffrey Schlupp, I think. And, 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 and the, 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 the way they just cut through the entire Liverpool midfield. And what's, what's even more impressive was, after that goal, they continued to play well. They continued to create incredible chances. And if it wasn't for the dubious penalty call, if it wasn't for that ridiculous penalty that was awarded, I think Palace could have even gone on to draw the game. That was just how impressive they were in the second half. Arvin, this is uh, this is a, a second string uh, Liverpool put together. Um, you know, Klopp. I never imagined that he would have to put this mm-hmm. team out, but uh, they they're pretty good. But um, do you agree with Keish that that maybe they just they got lucky on this one? The, the scoreline really flatters them. Yeah, because if you look at the penalty call, I mean, it, it was literally Diego Jota running into Vincent Guetta. He, he 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 stick his right foot out, and he was looking for that foul. It was very clear that, um, and I've completely understand Patrick Vieira being completely aggrieved against uh, Kevin Friend, the, 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 the referee, because on another day itself, that, that, that just shouldn't be given. And when you when that happens at that late of the game, the momentum is gone. It's completely gone. But if that doesn't happen, that home at Selhurst Park, which can be a very hostile environment, 
they've already scored one good goal, one very good team goal, like what Keisha said. The impetus is on them to go ahead and let's get that second one. And they could have gotten that second one. So I think Liverpool were, were fortunate. But on your question about the Liverpool squad, yes, there were changes there. Uh, but there were a couple of players that came in and have done relatively well as well, considering the absences that they've had from AFCON. Um, Oxlade-Chamberlain, I thought last night was good. He led the press well. Uh, he forced Palace to make errors at the back, so I thought that was good. Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold are just so deadly in a sense that you would see Trent doing it week in and week out and giving you fantasy points. <laughs> and then on the week that he's completely quiet, you see Andy Robertson come and give you two. So it's like, if we shut one out, great. But then the other one's going to hurt you anyway. Uh, Joe Matip, for me, looked a bit unconvincing at the back. But Patrick Vieira can feel aggrieved for that one. But Palace, great character to come back from that. From 2-0 down against Liverpool, great character. Uh, we're going to move on, but I just want to say that beginning of the season, I was expecting nothing from Crystal Palace. And now I, I'm, yes. I've enjoyed them more than just about any other team in the, the league. And I, and I wish them well. They are not my team. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> and in a moment, we come back with a club called Man City here on Off The Ball, BFM 89.9. Because whilst he's there, it's been very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off The Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back with uh, a front three of Arvin Sidhu, Kishnan Sundaresan, and Sean Merholtra, the new guy who's uh, proving to be... Uh, worth it i think and uh we we're going to move on to funny you know putting it i put it all the way down here because i really i didn't want to put it all the way up there but we're talking about the reigning champions here um no i think i can remember southampton won man city won i was really stunned by this uh score line. i just want to say first of all southampton a team i never think about but walker peters who's never scored a goal before scored i think one of the finest goals i've seen in a very long time what, uh, Sean, is happening at Southampton? I think what you get with Ralph Hasenhutl's team is a very hardworking team, right? You should never discredit them. They will always try. I mean, they started the season rather slowly, but now you're slowly seeing them pick it up. They're not a team to be taken lightly because you've got players there who, who can hurt you. Your James Ward-Prowses, your Carl Walker-Peters, who, who I think you know is underrated in that team because he does provide a lot going forward. He does provide a lot at the back as well. And today, he I mean, yesterday he showed it, or the day before, he showed it in the most amazing of ways with a really, really great goal. And I think Southampton could have actually won the game on any other day. They have a very, very impressive player in Broja, Broja. I can't pronounce his name properly, but he could have scored a goal as well if he was onside. So I think with how strong the team is in midfield as well, you've got big, strong men like Romeo who will whack you if he really wanted to and get the ball. And you've got James Ward-Prowse who can create and score. Dead balls are pretty much penalties for, for Southampton, whether it's a free kick or a corner. You know they'll create a chance. So I think it, it showed that they're very, very, very astute and disciplined team. And uh, just, just I'm scrolling down, I'm scrolling down. Southampton now at 12th. 12th. Uh, it's pretty impressive, I think. But uh, Kishnan, can I ask you then with their, their brave opponents, Man City, uh, Gogolin on on the Friday show has been saying, as if it's science, that Manchester City will have a blip, that there will be a time in in the season where they'll go on a run of a bad run. Do you think that's possible? Because and is this perhaps in, indicative of something? Because they had seventy five percent possession in this match and, and yet failed to beat Southampton. I I don't know if. A blip is the right word to describe this this particular game. I don't know if this is the beginning of a blip because ultimately it's not like City couldn't create chances. They were exceptionally dominant. They, they controlled uh, possession. They created like 16 chances or so in, in, in that game. Um, the fundamental problem that they were having uh, was converting those chances. And a man that was right smack in the middle of all these missed chances is Raheem Sterling. And, and bear in mind that Raheem Sterling is now... He's not scored a goal in the Premier League since like the 27th of, of uh, December when they put six past Leicester City. And every other game since then, I think there's been four, three or four. Every other game since then, he's just looked very substandard. And it's even more so in the last two games, the one last week and the one against Southampton. There were some crazy good opportunities where he was just clear with the goalkeeper and all he had to do was just make sure it's on target and it beats the goalkeeper. And, you know, City would have, would have scored an, an additional goal. And he misses them. And I'm not sure what exactly is going wrong with, with, with Ryan Sterling. Because even statistically this season, he's got like seven 
in 19 games, which is slightly underwhelming when you think of it. You'd expect a lot more out of Raheem Sterling. And I think Pep Guardiola himself expects a lot more out of Raheem Sterling. You could see that there's a lot of frustration in the air when he was subbed off yesterday. I think that's the area that City would need to solve, um, which is how do we convert those chances? How do we get dig deep and get a goal against teams that defend in low blocks? Like Sean, Sean completely alluded to it, right? Uh, Southampton are very good defensively. Ralph Hasenutel is one of the most you know, incredible coaches that came from the German football system, the Austrian football system, and understands what it means to defend in a low block. Uh, but in situations like that, teams like Man City need to figure out alternative ways because they don't have a, a classic number nine. There's a lot of rumours about a River Plate striker um, being monitored. I'm not sure whether he's going to come in now or end of the season, but they need to figure out how um, they're going to convert chances against teams like Southampton. Um, Having said that, I don't know if this is a blip, though. This could just be a you know one game situation, and next game they they're back to the absolute best. Alvin, I want to follow on actually from from uh, Kishan's point about the the number nine. I mean, Raheem Sterling's not really a striker per se. Strikers don't grow on trees. The, the, the top striker who who is out there, and do you, do you think that uh, Pep Guardiola, who does like to do this false nine thing, do you, I mean, does he need a striker like an old fashioned just get a decent striker, a Harry Kane? I think Pep is probably the most annoyed with this question because he'll always say that when we win, you never bring it up. But when we lose, this is the main thing with us, that we don't have an out-and-out striker. Uh, he did it last season. Let's just put, let's not take anything away from him. He did it last season without an, an Aguero who was peripheral at best, right? Uh, at Bayern, he had Lewandowski, which was a focal point. At Barcelona back then, okay, maybe he, he had a WVR. But it's, it's to a point that what he has up front right now it's he's trying to fit them into a system and trying to fit them into a way of playing to convert the chances, but they're naturally not those kind of players. He tried to play Jack Grealish. Jack Grealish, for me, lacks that guile to make it into a false nine position. Um, Jack Grealish, when he was when he was with Villa, he could slow down the game and he could influence it. At City, it's very quick. It's very quick passing. Let's get on the ball. Let's get it done. So when Jack Grealish slows down the game, it slows down a lot of the other City players around him as well. Um, but they need a striker. And, and Julian Alvarez, who, who Kish pointed out, coming from River Plate, you can't expect a 21-year-old to come in and convert the chances like, like they did, right? If Pep felt that he needed a striker, or he felt that he wasn't getting the goals, he wouldn't have let Ferran Torres go. But he obviously believes in what he's doing. But at the end of the season, I still feel that they will go out and get an out-and-out number nine. Is it Erling Haaland? It could be. Could they go back in for Harry Kane? Potentially. Uh, but they, they 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 definitely need an out and out number nine because I doing it two seasons in a row I think is out of this world. I don't think they can do it for three seasons. Yeah, not not that it's for any of us to question Pep Guardiola, <laughs> but you can't help thinking that uh, you know a striker like a Aguero Aguero did did well there, so maybe that would be what they need. Hey, um, I want to move on to what I think is the most startling scoreline of the entire weekend, quite frankly. Arsenal nil, Burnley nil. For any uh, Arsenal fans out there, I'll say it one more time. Arsenal nil, Burnley nil. Uh, I mean, what? How? How? Um, so, Sean, I want to start with you. And you're a young man. You're 27. So I have to give yeah. you a bit of football history here. About 20 years ago, Arsenal were a very big club, and they they went on a, a uh, they used to win the league, and they went a long run without losing. And they, they the team was called the Invincibles. Now, in your lifetime. Yeah. Can you conceive of Arsenal ever rising to those peaks again? And what do you think Arsenal would need to do in order to be able to do that? What they had, the Invincibles team, I think even Arsenal fans can't believe what they're seeing now because that Invincibles team used to make me cry as a child. So what you have now with this Arsenal team, I think Edu has, has come out and said many times that they're, they're building for the future. That's fine if you're a club like Leicester. That's fine if you're a club like uh, Everton. I understand that, but you're a club that's huge in Arsenal. I still consider them a big club because a club like Arsenal shouldn't be aiming just to, to make it into the top six. They should be challenging for trophies. They've strayed so far away from that because of this idea that you should be building, building, building. How many seasons can you go building? You've left out your, your star striker and Obama Young. You, you've got kids who are playing in positions. Uh, that's not going to work long-term for Arsenal. You can't say that this team is going to 
hit the heights of City, Liverpool, Chelsea in the next four or five years because they're going to get better in four or five years as well. The, the problem with Arsenal right now is there is no cohesion in that team. You've got players who constantly are looking backwards instead of forwards. I think it, it happened throughout the entire Burnley game where it would go from Ramsdale to White to Holding to Tierney to Lokonga and then it'll go back again. And if you went forward, Odegaard is the only guy who's trying to create and I think their best player, Smith Rowe, is not being utilised as much as he should be right now this season. Because I think in Burnley, against Burnley, he was their best player. It's just nothing came off. He created many chances and nothing came off. So this Arsenal team is a, a shadow of that invincible team. A Manchester United fan there very eloquently saying how uh, Arsenal's glory days are in the past. Uh, you, I just remind you, actually, Manchester United have been in the, in the wilderness for about exactly the same amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Kishnan, I want to pursue this one again. Can you conceive of a, a, a way for Arsenal to move? Any, is there anybody out there who could help them? Uh, is it Vlahovic? Because they haven't scored a goal in four games. Yeah, but the, the fundamental issue for Arsenal at the moment is just that consistent goal scoring uh, and a bit more presence in midfield. I think they are, they're short on numbers when it comes to, to, to midfield. Their options are slightly limited at the moment. I mean, if, if you look at their lineup against Burnley, uh, it was essentially like a four-one-four-one, and 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 the guys that are playing in the in the attacking four, uh, like I, I can't really say they're midfielders. I can't really say they are the wingers. Um, Bukayo Saka is probably the only winger. Martinelli is not a traditional winger. He's a guy that plays almost like a second striker. Emil Smith Rowe needs to be playing in a number ten position. Uh, Martin Odegaard too is a number ten, but they were essentially being used as two central midfielders, and I think. That lack of numbers, that lack of options in midfield to figure out the best position for Odegaard and Smith Rowe is hurting Arsenal, especially in games like this. Because games like this, you needed either one of Odegaard or Smith Rowe to have that complete creative freedom to be able to just move everywhere, disrupt uh, Burnley, and try and pick out those passes that you would expect them to pick out. But they couldn't do that because they had defensive duties to fulfill, being as being uh, part of that central midfield position. And I go back to that striker situation too, right? Uh, uh, the Aubameyang crisis has not helped. I think Lacazette is past his best, um, regardless of how great he is at holding up. And there's a lot of burden now on just the youngsters to produce that goal. And that can happen, I'm sure, in certain games. But surely you cannot put that much of expectations and burden on young players to deliver that for an entire season. Um, that's why they've been very strongly linked with multiple strikers throughout January. Uh, personally... I don't think Vlahovic is the guy for Arsenal. I would rather see them go for players like Alexander Isak, uh, who plays in Sociedad. I would rather see them go for Patrick Schick, who plays for Leverkusen in the Bundesliga. But, but having said that, we're nearing the end of the January window. And at this point, any striker that's credible in Europe would honestly help Arsenal. Um, and, and if it's Vlahovic, then so be it. They've got to get someone in if they're really going to push. Because there's way, way too much pressure on Martinelli. Bukayo Saka, Smith Rowe, and Odegaard at the moment. Uh, yeah, Olivier Giroud is still playing, isn't he? Um, <laughs> I think, why did anybody ever get rid of Giroud? I, 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 anyway, uh, we move on. I want to, Arvin, I'm going to throw one to you now, which uh, which caught my eye also. Brentford won, Wolverhampton Wanderers two. Now, by the way, Wolverhampton Wanderers, their, their stadium, Molyneux Park, has suffered a uh, major fire. Um, just last night, and a significant damage apparently. So uh, this is going to cause havoc, yet more havoc for the uh, the schedule. But uh, want to ask you about Wolves because uh, they've gone under the radar. They are now presently uh, in eighth. They're four points above ninth, which is Brighton, a, a club that a lot of people talk about. Um, something's going right at Wolves, and they seem to be under no particular pressure. What? What is going right? Bruno Larger has come in with a very... Um, he's done good things in his previous jobs before, but he's come in very under the radar since being appointed at Wolves. Um, he praised his team's professionalism uh, in getting the win, especially in the second half. And that's what they are. They are a very professional unit. Um, Motino, for me, and Neves completely control things. I mean, if you look at the goals that they scored as well, I mean, the first one finishing with the outside of the foot, the second one as well, the, the, the goal that came from outside the box, superb positioning. Um, they could even aff afford a disallowed goal for Adama Traore, who is being linked with a very closely potential move to Tottenham. So for me, they've just kind of gone under their radar and they've kind of been very professional about it. 
they just go out to win. Nothing too fancy, nothing too flashy. Go out and win. Uh, but they've got players uh, who on their day can really show up. I mean, we talked about Martino. I thought Nelson Semedo as well had one of his better games in, in the Wolves shirt. Plenty of joy galloping down the right flank. Uh, provided the assist for Martino as well. Uh, but yeah, even a disruption of a game of a drone flying over couldn't take away <laughs> Wolves' performance on the day. So for me, uh, deservingly where they are. Perfect, perfect acronym for a dark horse of the season for me would be Wolves. Okay, we're going to come back in a moment. We're going to talk about the Merseyside derby. Well, it's not really, but it kind of was. Uh, with Everton and Aston Villa here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time. But coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back. Off the Ball. And uh, last few matches, um, I called it earlier a Merseyside derby. It wasn't really, but uh, Stephen Gerrard, manager for Aston Villa, very happy man because they walked away the 1-0 winners over Everton, uh, being shepherded at the moment by Duncan Ferguson, who I'm a big fan of Duncan Ferguson, I, I, one of my favourite players. And uh, he, in a very Ferguson style, uh, or a drunken Ferguson, as uh, Des Corkill likes to call him, put money behind uh, the bar at a pub, local pub, so that all the fans could have a drink, which, which is it's important in, in Merseyside, apparently. So um, it, I was very disappointed that they lost, but Sean, the... Um, should I be expecting this? Was this not on the cards? I mean, Villa are, Villa are improving, are they not? Yeah, I mean, Steven Gerrard has changed this Villa team drastically. They pretty much play with two number 10s in Coutinho and Buendia. They're a very attacking team. And he's brought in good players, right? Dinier, probably one of the best left-backs in the league. Could play for any of the top six teams. A huge fan of him. You've got Coutinho, who on any given day can turn it on if he wants. I would know. I'm a United fan. He turned it on when he came back. So he's building a great team. You've got really good attackers and you've got really solid men in defense. Tyrone Mings and Konsa. You've got their young boy as well. Uh, Murphy, I think. Oh, Jacob Ramsey, sorry. He's got a really good team. With Everton, they're currently in another transition. You know, Duncan Ferguson coming back in, it's not about performing great. It's more like stabilizing because he did that before Ancelotti came in as well. And he did a good job at it, stabilizing the ship. And to have your first game or so against Villa is not a great start because Villa is a team on the up and Everton's a team on the down. I think they have positives that they can build on, but to lose the first game for Ferguson, it's not great against Villa. But there's, there are bright spots where they can build on. Kishnan, Villa are, sorry, Everton rather, are... Well, they're in the, the relegation dogfight, are they not? And uh, they're talking about, you know, they're obviously going to try and find a new manager. Uh, who do you think it could be? And can they save themselves? Are they in genuine trouble? Honestly, Cam, I, I, you asked me these questions and with Everton at this point, I really don't know. I don't know anything about Everton anymore <laughs> because the, 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 their direction is just simply ridiculous. It's topsy-turvy. It doesn't make any footballing sense. They've just gone back and forth multiple times over the seasons. Um, and it's it's so difficult to make sense of some of the decision-making. Uh, you, you look at the players that, that they try to bring in. I mean, let's look realistically at the last four or five years, that the managerial shifts that have happened. You've, you've changed managers who have had styles of football that are so contrasting. And whilst trying to retain a similar squad, how, how does that work? I don't get it. You try to build your squad depending on the brand of football that you want to play. That's why you get in the director of football. So I'm not quite sure what Marcel Brands, uh, the director of football that has now left the club. I'm not quite sure what he had been doing for the last few, uh, few years. I'm not sure what's the rationale be behind some of the signings. And most importantly, I'm not even sure what's the rationale behind some of the decisions that were made before Rafa Benitez's second. Because I think they, they dismissed um, some someone in the backroom staff who was reportedly um, having a role with Rafa Benitez. And then they go on to sell Luca Dean, who was easily one of the best left-backs in, in Europe, um, like Sean mentioned. They sell him to Aston Villa because he had a falling out with Rafa Benitez. And a few days later, they sack Rafa Benitez. Like, so now you've lost your manager and you've lost easily one of the best left-backs in the world. And what's the point of that? You could have retained him and just, you know, sacked Benitez instead. So there's a lot of confusion going on at Everton. And, and the best way to sum it up would be when they lost against Villa, 1-0, the best player on the pitch for me was Luca Dini. He completely destroyed Everton. 
that that day with his runs and his movements. Uh, I think that really sums up Everton at the moment. Everything is so messy, and I don't really know what to expect from them anymore. Uh, and Arvin, I can't help but ask a question following in on from that. Uh, what Kishan described is actually faintly familiar to me uh, with the the Leeds United story. Once upon a time, uh, you know. Could Everton do a Leeds? I don't think they have the financial issues of uh, Leeds United back then. And a completely unrelated question, I, I need to ask you though, Buendia, is he any good? Uh, for me, this is a classic case of the corporate world when you get top management not speaking to each other. There's obviously in at Everton, you've got two very, very big players at the top. You've got Farhan Moshiri, who is the majority shareholder, and you've still got Bill Kenwright, who's got a lot of say in that club. There's rumours that they can't even agree if they want to appoint Wayne Rooney into it. Farad Moshiri is against it. Bill Kenwright is for it. So when you have top management not agreeing on the basics of what the club requires, which is appointing a manager and the style of play that you want to, to go moving forward, what, what reasons would players or normal coaches want to come in and perform day in, day out when there's so much uncertainty in the club? So they, they can't get it right at the top level. But it's not due to a lack of investment because they've spent a lot of money these last few seasons, Everton. They've spent a, a tremendous amount of money. Uh, I don't think they, they, they would be in a similar situation that Leeds were. Leeds were financially broken. There were a lot of things being reported in the press which were not true. I put that down to Peter Reesdale's uh, management of the club at that time. I would never blame David O'Leary because David O'Leary just asks for something and Peter Reesdale gives it to him. He's a, he's a coach. He runs with it. It's not his job to, to manage it. So for me, I think there's contrasting differences, but Everton aren't, aren't going down, in my opinion. They, they will stay up, but they've got a lot of things to start off off the pitch for me. Uh, poor old Arvin. He must be so sick of people saying, doing a Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm going to move on then to uh, another match which caught, well, kind of caught my eye. Leicester won Brighton won. I thought it was actually a very, a very exciting match. And with Leicester being unable to convert chances, and I can't help thinking that Brendan Rodgers, maybe he's stayed there a little too long. Maybe it's time for a change of scenery. He'd be a very attractive proposition for a number of clubs. Sean, do you do you do you think that shall we say struggling Leicester are a team now facing a big transition? The game against Spurs week was a great indication of how they've been. Right, they they had a good control of the game. They were literally three minutes away from winning the game, and you you give up two goals in a minute. It's very United in '99, right? And then you go into this game against Brighton, which is a must-win game, but take nothing away from Brighton. They're a really well-coached team. I think right now it's a matter of, you know, just getting cohesion back in the team because you've got great players out there, your, your Nachos, your Madisons and all this. But whether or not Rogers needs to, to not be there or, or a change is needed at Leicester, I think is too big a question because I think he's doing a good job. Because you need to remember, this isn't the Leicester of the, the title-winning season. This is a Leicester that is building again. Right, And they've had their injuries, they've had their problems with, with COVID as well. So I think they'll get it back. I don't think this is a blip, but I think it's just a run of poor form at the moment. But they'll get back to where they need to be because they're still a really, really good squad. And I think Brandon Rogers fits the mold for Leicester right now. Okay, we're going to take a, a sudden halt and turn. And we're going to do a Cruyff turn on this one to uh, not talk about the EPL. Kishnan, what, if anything, has been catching your eye about AFCON? I mean, you've got the incredible news uh, that happened last night. Uh, Nigeria officially out of the AFCON. They got knocked out by Tunisia. Uh, Alex Iwobi got sent off for Nigeria. I, I think this is, this came as a major shock. Um, when you look at the way Nigeria blipped through the group stages, they looked comfortable, they looked assured, they looked commanding. Um, you, you look at the attack that Nigeria have, right? You've got uh, Samuel Chukwuze, who plays for Villarreal, who's really, really good. You've got Kelechi Ihenacho, who comes from Leicester, you know, incredible football player. And at the same time, you've got Taiwo Awoni, who's been such a bright light in Union Berlin season in the Bundesliga this year. You've got three incredible strikers. And that's not even taking into consideration Victor Osiman, who plays for Napoli, who's currently out injured, right? So there's a lot of quality in this team. And the expectation was that Nigeria was going to make full use of this quality to get all the way through. And to be fair, in the group stages, they did look really, really good. Uh, they looked strong. They looked commanding. But last night, uh, that was shocking. Because in terms of chances created, in terms of imposing themselves on Tunisia, they did quite well. But Alex Iwobi's red card did not help at all. And, and Tunisia's incredible, there was this incredible goal from Youssef Masakni 
That was a long-range strike that completely gave Tunisia um, a 1-0 win. Um, and Nigeria are out. The really important favourites are out of the uh, competition as well. Um, that's that's the big story at the moment. But the one that I'm looking forward to the most um, is the AFCON game that's that's going to take place between Cameroon, the host nations, and Comoros. Comoros are participating in their first ever African Cup of Nations. And they're through to the knockout stages. And the heartbreaking thing about it is, chances are they're probably going to go out because they've got one goalkeeper injured and they've got two goalkeepers uh, who have contracted COVID-19 and they don't have a single goalkeeper in their team. True. And they're expected to field an outfield player in goal against the host nations, Cameroon. And that's such a heartbreaking ending to what has been an incredible run for the debutants, right? They, they've been the story of, of the tournament so far, so much of heart and soul. Um, and, and, you know, you, you would expect, you would want fairy tale stories like this to continue. But judging by that situation, chances are, you know, it's it's probably not going to continue. And and you, you look at the results now, the tournament has been blown absolutely wide open. Absolutely wide open. Ghana were knocked out in the group stages. Algeria were knocked out in the group stages. So now you've got opportunities for teams like Morocco, uh, Senegal, Cameroon, Tunisia, even some of the smaller countries like Gambia, Burkina Faso, Malawi, all have dreams to be able to go as far as possible in this tournament. So it's it's only going to get exciting from here on. It's only going to get even more exciting. And uh, very quickly, Arvin, uh, what's caught your eye on AFCON? What's going to catch my eye is Ivory Coast coming up against Egypt because I think that's going to be the most attractive match left. I mean, obviously, there's all the fairy tale stories that, that, that Kish has pointed out, but it's really the quality of two teams going up against each other. Uh, Nicolas Pepe, for me, is showing... He shows it at least at Ivory Coast, not maybe not much with Arsenal. He's showing exactly why Arsenal splashed that amount of cash on him. He displaced Algeria, I thought, single-handedly on his own. Egypt, for me, even with all the Salah talk, they're quite fortunate, I think, where they are right now to be still at at, at the situation that they're in. They were dominated by by Nigeria. They were barely convincing against Guinea, Basel and Sudan as well. So for me, that is the the match that I'm looking forward to. But there's still so many of these other stories that are happening, right? Uh, I was reading there was also the the situation where where Tunisia, before they, they, they knocked out Nigeria, they had to separate their players into three different hotels because of potential COVID restrictions. And to take away that team bonding before a game against Nigeria, but still to beat Nigeria, yeah, that's what football is all about. So for me, it's been a, it's been a good tournament and it's going to get better. Well, that neatly brings us to the end of this week's uh, episode of Off the Ball. And I want to thank our pundits, uh, Arvin Sidhu. Thank you, everyone. Have a good week ahead. Uh, Kishnan Sundaresan. Thank you so much, guys. And our debutant, I think he did pretty well. The crowd seemed to be reacting well to him. They always like a local boy. <laughs> and, uh, and so thank you, Sean Malhotra. Thank you so much. I hope to do this again. Please join us on Friday for On the Ball here on BFM 89.9. Build a mentality in that dressing room that's powerful, strong, made them feel like they're unbeatable. What a coach. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.